0: It was because I presented something. I owned up to it. I didn't, you know, I didn't hide it or bury it. And I think I think that that integrity is pretty critical. I think that it's not often rewarded uh, uh, always, but I think that it's not a rewarded with like who your boss is and if they're going to keep you on staff or not, but the people that you work with, your peers, or the people that you're managing, they respect that. And what I've learned in, I guess, my 15 years in a career right now is really about the fact that, those people actually matter more than the companies, right? If somebody gets laid off today, if somebody, uh, you know, when there's mass layoffs in, in podcasting or anything like that, I immediately post on LinkedIn that I'll talk to anybody. If somebody is working at a partner company that we're working with and they're unhappy, I'm not here to like rat them out to the, the company. I'm not here to stifle them. I'm here to make sure that they thrive because it's, I, I think, I think it's very beneficial to focus on the people. That's how success
1: happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Brian Barletta is the founder of Sounds Profitable a podcast company dedicated to exploring the world of podcast advertising and monetization. He is one of the foremost experts on the podcasting industry in the world today. With over 13 years in the ad tech business, Brian has helped podcasters and advertisers navigate the ever-evolving landscape of audio content. He founded Sounds Profitable in 2020 after working at podcasting companies Megaphone and Claritas. He saw the need for and thirst people and companies had for learning about the emerging and ever growing podcast industry.
0: Yeah, so it was a uh, my graduating class in high school was 164 kids, and I think that was like the biggest in almost 10 years. And it was a very small town. Uh, it was the town my mom grew up in. We lived in the house she bought from my grandparents. I had neighborhood friends. I could walk to school. I think there was two elementary schools, one middle school, and one high school. When I went there, I think there still might be just that very few stoplights. And it was it was fun. Uh, small town I got I was a little bit on the heavier side, a little bit geekier. I still think I'm plenty geeky now, but definitely hung out with the kids who were skateboarding and into doing recording videos and running stuff at the, the local access television network, all that stuff. It was a very fun. Yeah, well,
1: I know you're not uh, that heavy anymore from seeing you and, and your workout routine, uh, of course, with deadlifting, um, <laughs> which I love too, as you know. But growing up also, was there an influence, someone early on in your life or, or someone that really kind of inspired you into the world you went into, which I look at from, from your history and we'll get into it, but really kind of technology and product development?
0: Yeah, my dad, my dad came over from Italy when he was about 4, and so in the early 60s and he he went to high school and it was a trade high school. He got into like woodworking, a little bit of mechanic work, and eventually got into technology. He used to work at the Boston Globe in the IT department, but he would kind of bounce from job to job in the IT space, and it always it was one of those things where like I used technology as a way to bond with him and we connected a lot over that, but He his career path with it always had me kind of nervous. So I didn't even think about technology as a career path. I went to college originally to be a history teacher. And it wasn't until my fifth year that I dropped out and dove back into technology because I just looked at my dad and it was a passion for both of us, but the struggle and the lack of consistency was daunting to me. So we used to we used to build computers together or you know, I'd break the computer and he'd leave a manual out because he worked a lot of night shifts. And uh, yeah, it, it led to me being obsessed with mobile phones. I remember getting my first job at McDonald's at 14, had to get like <laughs> a waiver from the school just to buy like the Nokia blue brick phone. And then I it bought it. every weird Nokia phone that came out from that point forward. Like I had the engaged, like the Game Boy cell phone type thing. I had every weird looking phone and then the iPhone came out and I bought it and I was in college and I re- I was doing content writing, I think for like 15 to 25 cents a word. I think half the time I was rewriting people's spam emails and articles. But it paid, (laughs) right? It paid. And But one person was saying, Hey, I would really like to start an app review site. They called it com." And eventually, we launched androidapps.com as well. But basically, every day, my job was to download six apps, play with them for like 15 minutes, write a story about it, or write write the review about it in 15 minutes after like only playing it for 15 minutes, then I bought a mini DV camera that I pointed straight down. And I would interact with the app while I was recording it. And I would do the voiceover, I think I don't know if I did the voiceover in real time, or if I did it afterwards, I forget. But I definitely didn't have like a very impressive microphone or anything. It was probably a gaming headset. I would put out six of those a day. And then when we did Android apps, we increased it to 12 a day because I would do six on each. And it was just absolutely wild. It was a lot of work. And it's it's funny, I don't consume YouTube very much now. I mean, more and more as I have kids, my kids are two and five and <laughs> there's a lot of interesting stuff on there. But like I probably put out thousands of videos on YouTube and probably consumed maybe as many as that.
1: You know, it's interesting. You talk about your dad and the relationship there and that that's awesome in terms of of the bonding. But it also sounds like it really kind of worried you a little bit watching him and and seeing, you know, and I have so much admiration for immigrants that come here and, and try and make it or make it. it's It's so difficult, but it seems like from watching him, you really, what would you say you took from him? Because here you were going to be this teacher, right? And, but then you really went back into tech, right? Yeah. So something, something flipped after even seeing all of this, what was it?
0: I, uh, in college, I, the father of my girlfriend at the time was like, uh, he would go to startups. He would work with them mostly on hardware building. They would design chips. They would design systems, high-end engineering stuff, really smart guy. His brothers were also in that space. I believe he may have even had like a PhD in technology. And when we would just talk about all this stuff, he would, he would highlight to me, he's like, I'm sure you'll be a great history teacher, but you very, very clearly like technology and you're good at it and you understand it. Why do you keep pushing it away? And it wasn't until shortly after me and my girl, my college girlfriend broke up that I decided to dig into it and take that chance. I just, I wasn't feeling, I, I did a student teaching gig at a vocational school and it was It was really a lot to be there to try and interact with these kids who I at one point would be in charge of, right, potentially, and they could not have cared less. And that, I just didn't think I could do that. I looked at the salaries teachers made. I have so much respect for teachers. I think we absolutely underpay them and it's pretty disgusting. And I kind of just had a breakdown and I just took a risk. I said, I could always go back and finish this. I think it's now it's been... I don't know, 15 years. I still haven't finished that degree, probably won't at this point, but I knew I could always go back. I knew that it it wouldn't, taking a few years off and going to get my teaching degree and then going to teach, I wouldn't be stopped doing that.
1: Yeah. First off, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's one of, if not the toughest jobs in America in terms of teaching our our youth. And And really, when I look at it and what these teachers do, especially having Two teenagers of my own, and seeing how the school systems work here in New York City, and just extremely admirable. But for you at that time, you were ready to do that. Can you take me back? And when you, what was that internal feeling like when you finally just said, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go after technology.
0: Yeah. I I mean, a lot of it was through the validation, right? So we're doing the reviews, the person that I pitched the idea to like, or he had like a job posting on, uh, I think it was digital something forums, but I pitched the idea and he immediately bought it. And he said, this is great. I'd love to work with you on it. Everything I would send him. He was a huge fan of. He was great at promoting it. I got the validation that this was good work there. And I was pretty much flat broke. I mean, it was, I wasn't making enough money to support myself. That's part of why I dragged college out into a fifth year to still get the financial aid. I think I cashed all my uh, savings bonds that year from my grandmother. My grandmother also from Italy. My name, Brian, is spelt with a y. She, I had a lot of savings bonds to brain Barletta, which thankfully, no issues cashing. And a friend of mine, we were both into Coheed and Cambria. And they're, they're all of their albums are all like stories, right? It's you get played in order and it tells the tale of what's going on in that chapter of the story. And I made some elitist comment that uh, I'll go see them live when they do the full album. So they did a four day tour with all the albums. My friend was like, we need to go. I was like, I can't afford $300 to the ticket. He paid for it. That was the weekend the Android G1 came out and I waited in line, bought that grabbed my desktop computer, the camera, the whole setup. We stayed in Jersey all day long. We had the windows drawn and I was recording all these app reviews. And then at night we'd go to the concert and I met up with somebody. There was an app that needed multiplayer for it. And I met up uh, with, with this woman, Rana, who worked at a company called Media MediaLets in New York. We just put out a post on like Craigslist or something. And she responded to it. We recorded a video, hit it off. And then she called me up. She said, we're looking for someone to run developer relations. Do you want to do that? And that's, that's when everything changed. Like I had the opportunity given to me just because I was visible. I was there and they eventually moved me to New York and it was, it was very cool. I'm very grateful for it.
1: Who knew what a concert would bring to you, right? Like as a, as an experience and that's the beauty in life. You never know yeah. who you're going to meet, right? Or. Yep. Find And tell me about that first experience. What was that like for you? Did you enjoy it? Did you learn a ton?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't write code. I've never taken a course on product management, like an official one with a certification or product or project management, but I, I've learned through experience. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that being a white guy in technology doesn't make things easier. It absolutely does. At these companies, I would see like the CTO who was doing ad serving at that time. Into major apps like NPR and all these other ones with a text-based white background interface, and he would just be losing his mind. And I was like, "Look, you, there's way more intelligent things that you can do. I'll take that part on, and I'll do it." And I just learned by just saying, "I can do that. I can take that on." I wrote, gu- I'd write guides about it, but I messed up a lot. Like I messed up more than I think I would have tolerance for. If someone I worked with now messed up. I definitely served a full screen ad on the launch of the iPad app for New York Times that did not have a close button, which led to the specifications of mobile ads to have the close button managed by the app and not by the ad. Because if you didn't have that app close button in the ad asset, it was just stuck. You couldn't even force close apps back then. So easily, I like to say that's my million dollar mistake, but it was it was trial by fire. I would just say, yes, I can do that. Yes, I can do that. There was nobody who would raise their hand. There's nobody who could do it. I became technical account manager, sales engineer, operations, product management, if there was a hole, I would fill it because I was passionate. I understood it. I filled that solid gap between sales and account management and then engineering to prevent an engineer having to go on a sales call.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it all makes sense now knowing where you are. And what I love about the story is that you made the mistake and it doesn't seem, of course, I'm sure at the time you we're probably anxious about it but it really seems like you're someone who understands that learning and growing especially in the technology space is really about making mistakes and getting things better did did you understand that at that time that look this is this is how things work this is how I'll learn this is how I'll grow
0: yeah i i think it It really clicked. I think that scenario is one where I really understood the value of immediately owning up to what happened, escalating it to the right people, being transparent about all of it, taking a breath and writing a postmortem on it, like not letting your emotions get in the way from it. Like absolutely go freak out afterwards, but make sure that it's documented enough that you can properly get help, that it can properly be triaged to make sure it doesn't happen again. I think that was a very big turning point for me because i knew that if i would have buried it if somebody else would have discovered it it would have been 10 times worse and throughout my career i've absolutely been laid off or fired more times than most people i would say and i think that the truth is is that none of those times were because somebody found something out it was because i presented something i owned up to it i didn't you know i didn't hide it or bury it and i think i think that that integrity is pretty critical i think that it's not often rewarded always but i think that It's not rewarded with like who your boss is and if they're gonna keep you on staff or not, but the people that you work with, your peers or the people that you're managing, they respect that. And what I've learned in, I guess, my 15 years in a career right now is really about the fact that those people actually matter more than the companies, right? If somebody gets laid off today, if somebody, when there's mass layoffs in, in podcasting or anything like that, I immediately post on LinkedIn that I'll talk to anybody. If somebody is working at a partner company that we're working with and they're unhappy, I'm not here to like, rat them out to the the company. I'm not here to stifle them. I'm here to make sure that they thrive because it's, I think it's very beneficial to focus on the people. Yeah, I,
1: I agree with you. I think just from being an entrepreneur myself and having gone through so many years of owning companies, building companies and understanding it, it all comes down to those people. And today, one of my favorite things is hearing from Someone who worked for me in the late '90s, or who, who has their own company now and, and is doing well, and and really just admiring that. And hopefully, they learned a little uh, from myself and my partner along the way, where they didn't give up. And talking about you and becoming an entrepreneur, tell me how that happened because you did go through a, a series of jobs, like you said, firings, and I love you kept your integrity, which is most important. But when was it? How was it? What was the final straw, so to speak, where you decided to go out on your own and start your own business?
0: Yeah. So when Media MediaLets move me to New York, it was a really cool experience. I had only, like I said, Massachusetts, where I was in Massachusetts, a very small town, which is very funny now because like, it's now like a rich town. And like, I go back to it and one of our partners has like a, record, a podcast recording studio in North Reading and it blows my mind. But New York was so different. I'd never experienced anything like that. It like, I'm an extrovert, but it was still a lot. And I'd made all these friends. I'd make so many friends in the startup space. And at that time, it felt like everybody was like, what's your idea? What's your startup going (laughs) to be? And I was not interested in it. I would have rather been someone's right-hand man. I wanted to basically allow them to keep running forward and take everything off their plate I can to make sure that that's successful. Because opening the doors and, and and creating those relationships, that's tough. But once the person's receptive, I can manage the account, I can get them set up for success, I can make sure that they're happy and well handled, not a problem. So I I really wasn't, I don't even know if I'm still interested in being an entrepreneur, particularly, because it's a lot, it's a lot of stress. I, I actually even stopped drinking, because I realized that now I, I say plenty of stupid things, on my own sober, I definitely don't need the help of alcohol. And I don't have anybody to fall back on. I can't, I don't have the security of a company to represent me. So what was the final draw was, I was over at Megaphone and we, I was brought on to like rewrite the ad server and the data pipeline. Very shortly after I was hired, the deal started with Spotify. They couldn't tell me that obviously. I'm very terrible at taking hints. I wanna succeed on what my tasks were. I absolutely butted heads with my boss. And wouldn't take the hint to like, stop rewriting the ad server, considering you can't sell a house while someone's ripping up a carpet, they let me go. And I had no idea what I want to do. But I knew that I wasn't visible enough. And I knew that people didn't know enough about what was going on in podcasting on the business side, right? These people anywhere from entry level all the way to CEO, many of them couldn't understand the difference between a download a listen and a stream, let alone how targeting works. All like every bit of the metrics, all the ad tech there, there was a little bit of confusion. I'd say there was a lot of confusion. And it was because we weren't spending time on education. We were just growing, growing, growing. So I just started writing. James from Pod News gave me a break there. We've since ended our relationship with them at the beginning of this year. So we had about two solid years collaborating with them. But we, we just started being, a, we started as a newsletter. And then I said, well, I'm writing about podcasting. It's You got to eat my own dog food, so I need to have a podcast, and so set up that podcast, and then we grew to a second newsletter, which was like our download, which is the recap of what's happening in that week, and then recently we realized that when we're creating the download, we're actually creating four additional days worth of content that we're picking through for the download, so we released another newsletter, and it grew and grew from like from just one one issue a week to now six issues split between two different lists, and yeah it's i mean it's so much more than that now but that's 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 the stopping point for where i realized i want like this was a career this is something at 37 i would be very lucky if i could continue doing this until i retire and i think that as long as the podcast space exists as its unique standing i, I can what did you love or what did you like
1: about podcasting that you knew you wanted to continue on after leaving Megaphone.
0: Yeah. it's The content's great. It just really speaks to me. I mean, I I subscribe to too many streaming video services, so I don't see ads there. I use ad block or different sort of like RSS readers for website content. So I don't tend to encounter ads there, but in podcasting, it didn't bother me, right? The ads that were in there weren't intrusive. And a lot of my career had been utilizing advertising to help fund new apps, new websites, new content. So making sure that podcasting was able to continue to grow was just really appealing to me. The content itself really resonates with me. I mean, I can think back. Everybody has their cereal memories, and I was at Adtherent, which which is where Barometric split off from, and we like we would absolutely talk around the water cooler. I would like how cliche is that? We actually would talk around the water cooler about cereal every morning, and even before that, I can remember being in college. So. I think it would be like 2006, 2007, and I would be downloading the MP3s for the joystick podcast, the video game podcast. One of the hosts was Justin McElroy, who started up like the the McElroys, my brother, my brother, and me, and all those big podcasts, and became a big part of Maximum Fun. And so I've just been listening to it forever. And I don't know. I I I have a strong group of friends, but. As life goes on, it becomes harder and harder to interact with them. And so something about podcasting was just like I had two young kids. Sometimes I can't talk with my friends. Sometimes I can't do that. Putting it in and listening to a bunch of friends play D and D or talk or joke or share the news or anything like that kind of made me not feel alone. So I wanted to make sure that that it thrived, that it was available for more people. Yeah, I love that,
1: and obviously what you say about podcasting and and the empathy and authenticity and and of course also as a dad being able to throw in your headphones and and be able to do it while you're doing other things is one yeah. of the most the, the greatest things right about podcasting and you know, to me it seems like when you decided to write was there this feeling of hey maybe now the teacher thing kind of makes sense like yeah. bring them both back together
0: yeah. And what I'm also learning is I would have been terrible at it because the whole lesson plan and structure and guides and creating curriculum is definitely not my strong suit. Spitting out ideas, hopefully making sure that they're understandable is great. But we're at this point now where we have three years of content and we're trying to turn that now, like condense the pieces that matter into a guide instead of looking through 150 articles to share to people. But the teaching thing definitely resonated with me. I I absolutely at some point will do like adjunct professor. I've had the opportunity to help teach classes at uh, different colleges, like come in for a session or two and really teach about podcasting. And it's very exciting. And I think what's appealing to me about that is I want to let people know that like, there's careers in the podcast space. And I think that I can do that.
1: Yeah, well, you've been a great ambassador, thought leader for for the podcasting industry. More from our guest, But first, a word from our sponsors. Harvard Business Review is the leading destination for smart management thinking, providing professionals around the world with rigorous insight and best practices to lead themselves and their organizations more effectively and to make a positive impact. HBR.org is updated with great new business management articles daily and includes key insights to those interested in practical advice for better business management. The site also features podcasts, videos, newsletters, and more. I recently read Mark Purdy and A. Mark Williams' article, How AI Can Help Leaders Make Better Decisions Under Pressure. As AI has become one of the most discussed topics, I found their observations on the benefits and risk of using these technologies deeply insightful for entrepreneurs and new business leaders. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, Subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code success right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code success to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. And we're back. Tell me about how things turned into this company that you started called Sounds Profitable.
0: Yeah. So it's really hard to describe what Sounds Profitable is because I don't have a peer to base it off of. We're a for-profit company because we were set up as an S-Corp. Tom Webster, my partner, left 18 years of Edison Research last June to come on and be my partner. He has been the face of research since podcasting began and he is phenomenal at what he does. Some of the best storytelling with data I've ever seen, really valuable insights, and every quarter we're pushing new research. When we started, the team at PodSites actually pulled a bunch of companies together, let me pitch what I was doing, and PodSites bought in as an advertiser. We For about a year, year and a half, we had advertiser slots, we've since removed them, and then we offered what we called partnership. Partnership is basically, trade association dues, right? That's, that's very similar to the mindset. The logos on the website with all of the newsletters, it's all randomized on there. And then I started offering consulting because I realized that these people had the right people that could own projects, but they had questions that they couldn't answer in field. And so I would spend half an hour a month with them. And it it just started to grow. I mean, our first month, I think was $1,200 with one sponsor and one, or one partner and one advertiser. And then I think it was like eight or ten partners the next month. And it's just, it's just continued to grow. And based on that, what I looked at was the, what did we want to do? First off, we needed to be neutral. So Tom and I own the company outright. We decided to not accept equity advisory or board seats in any other company. Really hard to be neutral when you get financial benefit from a certain company succeeding. We don't work on kickback or commission, which is where we differentiate ourselves from like talent agents or people like that. And we also use third-party managed services for our investments so that there's nothing as more and more podcast companies go public. As we're recording this, I think what podcast one is going on uh, the Stock Exchange. So, and we sign MNDAs with all of our partners. And by being neutral, we attracted more partners by putting out content that was valuable for their sales team and their internal teams to learn from or share with clients became more valuable. And so it continued to grow and grow. We started doing our own live events attached to other big events to encourage people to go, share data, do networking. And that worked out great. Big part for us was not to charge anymore for that, right? Go as wide as possible. A lot of these organizations charge you a membership fee and then tickets and all of this. Podcasting is too small for that, right? I'm sure at one point, everybody in podcasting can afford $2,500 conference tickets, but today they can't. And so I knew that I wanted to build something it would be incredibly hard to partner with other people on, right? We try and partner with Adweek, AdAge, all Digiday, and all these people, and our model just doesn't mesh with them. Try to partner with events, try to partner with other things, it gets a little bit messy because our model is there's no additional money to take from these people. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in providing service, and by the sheer number of people that we're able to work with and represent, affect change in this space, and that's that's kind of what we're able to do. We're part of the IAB, both the Tech Lab. The US, the UK, Australia, ANA. and we we talk with all of our partners. We make sure they're aware on what's going on there and we help lead the decisions in there. So I, I think a lot of what we became is very much like a supplemental or an additional trade association. There's bigger names and we're not here to take that. There's bigger events and we're not here to take that. We're here to be the best part and make our partners' money go further in those spaces.
1: What was it and how did it come about your relationship with Tom Webster, who, as you mentioned, has kind of been the I don't know if you'd say spokesperson, but the person who's really talked about the podcasting industry for for many years before most people even knew what a podcast was. How did that partnership, how did that relationship start? And then what made you both decide to come together?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I'd been a fan of Tom's for the longest time. I'd read all of his research or watched his webinars. You know, we would pause everything in the office, doesn't matter what company I was at, to consume the stuff that he was putting out. We would cite it and reference it. And I was a big fan of all his content. He used to do a blog called I hear things and I was such a huge fan of it. I pushed him at that time, not even being like a great like I don't think we had like even a like a an industry relationship at that point. I was just a fan and I had pushed him. I said, "Hey, you need a podcast version of this. You have a great voice. It's a great story. I can hear it in my head at your as your voice, but like you should do that." And he did it. And then we kind of hit it off and Edison came on as a partner for a bit. And outside of Tom and I working together through Edison, we would connect over other things. We connected over board games. We connected over like just everything. We became friends. And I knew that Sounds Proper was going to hit a roadblock. And I took a shot. I mean, originally, we had talked about James Cridlin from Pod News. We talked about kind of merging the two companies. And then he Kind of backed off from that which is super okay i think we're in different directions there's another partner i was working with at some point or someone that i was going to bring on as a partner and it just it felt a little lopsided it felt more about the money about, than the the focus and so i kind of just took a shot with tom and my opening offer was here's half the company and and that was that was really i was edison is such a big company in podcasting and tom was such an integral part of it there that I did not think it would happen, but I figured I'd take a shot. And there were changes going on at Edison at the time. And Tom decided that he didn't want to be split between podcasting and other research. So he came on board. And it's it's been phenomenal since then.
1: Well, you gave him a great offer. You had started this business. And how did that feel personally when this person you were such a big fan of over all these years said, you know what? Yeah, let's do it.
0: Oh, absolutely electric. I mean, it it validated so many of the things that I had been working on. I'll be honest with you, like I made incredible money doing what I was doing, but the cap was coming, right? I didn't know how I would continue to put out an article every week, what would be new and interesting. At that point, we were just the newsletter and the consulting. Tom came on and it allowed us to do research and live events. It allowed us, we're building a research database that'll be live for our partners soon. We're We're going to be announcing uh, some collaborations with some major events. We're talking about how to get partners uh, from in podcasting to can, right. And be at these big events. We're providing lounge space for our partners at the events that they're at so that they can have secure business meetings in without having to like walk 10 minutes down the road to go to a meeting. So I think that Tom unlocked the door on a lot of these things and it was instantly visible. It was, everybody was talking about it. Everybody wanted to talk to me or talk to Tom. We grew probably about 20 partners overnight when he came on board we launched, we did our first live event which i think had 300 people at it it was a full day event it was really validating and i think that i'm very happy for the success that we've had and that's one of those shining moments on there that i'm just like yeah i'll take the win here i will enjoy it but every other time i don't rest on any of that right i realize how fragile all of this is i realize there isn't a peer in this space and if we're not doing good by the space, all this could fall apart. And so we celebrated on that end and then got right back to work kinda.
1: Yeah, you're an entrepreneur and, and you talked about it now, right? And there's not only that, you're an entrepreneur, but also an ambassador for the podcasting industry, which we could talk about and kind of where it is at this point. And as we know, Tom was a thought leader, you're a thought leader in the space right now. Give me your take, just starting this business with Tom, how difficult has it been? Have there been big challenges for you? I mean, we're talking about this incredible growth you've had and rise and yeah. through the industry. Everyone knows in the podcast industry sounds profitable, but have there been challenges? What are some of those that you've faced in the last year or so?
0: I think that we're at about 150 partners, and I'd say 10 of them are on the buy side, seven agencies, three brands. And we're working hard to grow that. We're working hard to get more relationships there. But I don't think that's ever been our express purpose, right? To bring those demand partners directly to our other partners and help them earn money. It hasn't been the direct, but it's been indirect, right? If I meet a new brand, I always try and introduce them to partners to get them to spend there and grow the three years that sounds proper was during like a normal, like a normal pandemic year, our boom year, our crash and then leveling out now. So it was, it was a lot. Right. And I think that last, the end of last year in Q4, a lot of the partners that I was, that I work with, their revenue was incredibly down and they were, went, the consulting calls that I had with them weighed on me a lot. Right. It, um, it definitely, I was definitely a little bit depressed, very anxious, I didn't feel like they were putting the pressure on me, like, we're going to cancel partnership if you can't get us money. But like, I felt the pressure to do that. And I think that that's probably one of the the scariest things that we realized, because that's an area that we're a little light on. Every time we interact with a brand, it's great. We give them tons of advice. We help out there. I don't push partnership. I'm very happy for them to be a partner. I just push for them to consume our content, to be open to coming to our events and trying to grow that. But that's that's the truth of it. that's that's the next step of what we had to do, and it's completely outside of our wheelhouse. so we're trying to manage that through partnerships, through all these other things, because there are bigger organizations out there that we were inspired by and we're trying to emulate aspects of MediaLink, brand innovators, even the IAB, and they have cultivated strong buyer relationships, which if you have a ton of buyer relationships, it's easier to get the seller side. Well, I'm heavy on the seller' side. now I have to get those buyer relationships. So it's evaluating do I do my own thing? Do I partner with any of them? Do I have to pay and become a client of one of them to do that and service our partners? But that's that we're at this inflection point of what are we, right? Like I said, we're a for-profit company. Do we need to have a non arm to be officially a trade association? More and more I read, apparently you can have for-profit trade associations. So not, not sure what goes on there. We're just at this big point now. And I think that it's it stemmed over from the end of last year where we need to figure out how to help all of these people more. I think we're providing tons of service. We're enabling them. We're providing sales material and collateral. But that next step is going to be making sure the events that ask for money have the people that everybody wants to meet. Making sure that us as an industry collectively own things. And some of our big initiatives we're, we'll be announcing soon that we're we're running an official one day event with South by Southwest at South by Southwest. So it'll be four panels plus Tom presenting. It'll have breakfast, lunch, then an after party, and it'll all be available to anybody with an interactive badge. We decided to pay for it. Like we we called up South by Southwest. We said, there's so much more that can be done with podcasting. We understand it's an opportunity cost. So what's that cost? And they gave a very high number. We talked them down a very little amount. And we know that if we put in that effort, and make room for our partners there and require them to help bring brands into that space, all of them will win. And then South by Southwest, we'll see why this should expand not just one day, but to three, five, seven days to live performances, all of that stuff. And that's, that's the next phase that we're in right now.
1: As you said, and, and knowing you, you're a good guy. How difficult was that for you because of this podcast industry and obviously ups and downs and with the economy itself? How hard was that? or for you personally, just when you were having those conversations with these great companies, probably great founders, but you know, they were running out of money. They, they couldn't
0: continue. Did that weigh on you? Absolutely. I mean, I I won't lie that I doubled up some uh, anti-anxiety medication in Q4. I, I grew up in Massachusetts. I live in Texas. Now I, in Massachusetts, my family thinks seasonal depression is like a cool personality trait. Uh, (laughs) The sun makes a huge difference for me. And when it's, Blew me out and people are upset, and, and I'm talking to them. It's hard. The second you hear something said three, four, five, 20, 50, 100 times, it feels like those people are asking you for help, even if they're not. When you hear the same thing from multiple people and the role that we're playing here, so it weighed on me a lot. And that's where we realized that we need to be a platform more. It's why Tom's been writing a little bit more, and I've been doing more stuff behind the scenes with consulting and getting things done. And I miss it. I miss some of the visibility there. But I think that with 150 partners and talking to all of them a month, I'm not invisible by any means. But it that weight changed the trajectory of what we wanted to accomplish. And I think it's for good because it shows that we're listening to the, the industry about what they need, even if it's not something that we can hit a home run on the first swing.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what I always loved about you and Tom and Sounds Profitable is that your industry first you're here and you're here to help people within the industry and I'm curious because this is entrepreneur we we get a lot of people who don't know maybe specifically all of the intricacies of course within the podcasting industry like you do some of them have just heard oh spotify spent x on this show and and now their stocks down and you know there there was a little bit of a uh, some negativity so yeah. to on the big general level, where do you see podcasting as, as a business and an opportunity, you know, not from just what you hear generally in in the news?
0: Well, first I want to address the Spotify thing, because I think they, they get a real bad rap for this. I think that they bought five years worth of data in one year. I think that they, they dove in headfirst. And I think what they identified, this is the biggest takeaway I have is that podcasting is like podcast apps are more like web browsers than they are streaming destinations like Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus. I use Safari. I get crap for that all the time, but I use Safari. And a website doesn't work on Safari, I evaluate if I need to go to that website, right? People were not drawn to use Spotify for some content and Apple Podcasts or whatever their default was for other content. That strategy didn't work. They tried it, they learned from it, they abandoned it, and now they're going a different direction. But when these articles come out, just like crapping all over Spotify, they ignore the acquisitions of Anchor. They ignore the acquisitions of Megaphone and Wooshka and PodSites and Chartable. The technology is solid. And Megaphone's strength was their sales team with decent technology behind it. Spotify's strength is the brand power and using that technology. They're still one of the top sources for buying audio advertising, right? There are probably more people out there that just spend on those major channels like Spotify than on the individual shows out there, like just number of advertisers even. And I and I think they just get a bad rap for that. I'm very thankful for them. I created a lot of turbulence in the space, but th- today I feel very secure in what's going on here. But the news, it's easy to talk about Caller Daddy and Joe Rogan. It's like you get my mom understands that my mom reads those articles and she calls me about them. But like explaining the value in megaphone and Spotify ad network and how Spotify streaming ad insertion is unique and could become a standard in the space. That doesn't get clicks, right? That gets clicks for my audience, which is really fun, but it doesn't get clicks for the general audience. So I think podcasting is an, an, an interesting situation. I think the people that are doing the best in podcasting right now have a vested interest in podcasting being its own channel. And I'm not against that, but it's weird that it's not digital audio which would include streaming audio and streaming music that feels weird to me. I mean, the IAB audio committee is primarily a podcast committee. There's not a lot of conversations about other stuff, but podcasting is kind of influencer marketing. I think that the, there are a wave of new companies here who wrap in a podcast sponsorship, a YouTube sponsorship, a newsletter, live events, a social media, all of that. And it's one package. And they don't let you unravel it, right? Like you can change the length, you can change like the quantity, so to speak, but it's all together. And that's to their benefit. Sponsorship is for the publisher. CPM advertising is for the advertiser, right? That's, that's really the win there. And, you know, influencer marketing is such a bigger industry. Video is a bigger industry. I think YouTube was almost 16 times the size last year than podcasting was as a whole industry. So sometimes like we're on this precipice of like, what are we? Is it valuable for us to be that silo? And I think more than anything, we're learning that we we probably did not do right by all the buyers, we, we were moving too fast, we assumed that it would be a never ending well. And now we need hunters, we need people to go out there and go get those buyers who've left go get those buyers who heard that it was too difficult to buy podcasting to educate them and pull them out. And so this next wave is going to be really tough because we're gonna to have to upskill a bunch of people We might lose more people. But I think podcasting Is very healthy for where it is. I think if we remove the boom years of the pandemic, where people who I do not believe were qualified to have ever raised money redid their metrics based on this 5X boom in a period of like four to six months and said, this will last forever, like that's insane. It's top tier bubble mentality. I think if we remove that spike for those two years, we're still on a a great growth trajectory. Like, and it might not be the cash out and the huge MA and all of that, but like, podcasting is growing. It's not growing in the same way as other things, but it's growing where things are declining. It's growing in a space that absolutely people have room for,
1: yeah. How do you see in and, and and that was explained incredibly well, just from a standpoint, if you haven't been in the industry and where it is because, like your mom, so many people just will read an article and think, Oh, an industry is is off because of a bit a big piece of news or you know, if some content. Gets sold or doesn't get sold, and really uh, looking at it, and, and personally being in the space for the the, the past four years, I kind of see it as a incredible time right now. Like you said, for this industry to really become whole, so to speak, and 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 to figure out right now what it is to become real. I don't know if that makes sense, but but it just seems like to me like you were talking about these crazy multiples and throwing money it seems to me right now it's back to business and the good thing about that or when you when you do go back to it is entrepreneurs create value or they're driven to create value and yeah. do you get similar
0: yeah i mean i think i think there's a, a ton of opportunity in the space still for people to make small shops and accomplish things. I mean, there's so much available inventory that if you're able to cultivate brand relationships, advertiser relationships, and bring them into podcasting, you utilize all these tools that you can get licensed rights to, whether it's an ad server or a or, or hosting platform, any of that, use third-party tracking and whatnot, you can very easily become a small agency. You can wrap a few brands and make millions of dollars, truly. And because these brands want that hand-on experience. There's a ton of brands out there that, bought all the big shows and they worked well, but now they want to buy smaller. They bought the medium-sized shows and and all these platforms out there that used to be repping shows that were 10,000 downloads per episode per month are now saying 25,000 downloads per episode per month. The host endorsed ad is so attractive to people. Whether it's more effective, our research showed that it was only about 7% more effective than a scripted announcer ad. The perception is there, right? That marketer, that person that you're convincing to buy podcasting they don't get the opportunity to go put the ad up in Times Square and take the Instagram photo of it. Podcasting can be their opportunity there and people can service that and make a margin in between just by facilitating it, right? If you have ad dollars, I doubt that there are very few, there are very many publishers who will not take your phone call. And, you know, the technology, we've scratched the surface on it. I would almost say we've paused, like really advancing it In the last two years, because we were just focusing on supporting what had already existed. I I think there's so much more opportunity there. Do I think it is smart to raise a ton of money in podcasting right now? I don't think so. I think it would be better to bootstrap it. But do I think it's still easy to build a business in podcasting? I think if you are laser focused and have a strong business plan, yeah, there are plenty of companies that chose not to just hire a bunch of marketing people and say, we do growth now, hire a bunch of salespeople and say, we do sales now. When the boom happened, they laser focused on building killer content, licensing it or selling it outright, and then going on to the next show. And those are the companies that I talked to in January and said, we're booked for half the year.
1: Yeah. uh, I love that. I agree with it. I think there is so much opportunity. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, if we look at this industry, if we look at podcasting and we look at sounds profitable. Where do you see? And I know it's hard when whenever we say, where do you see this? And it's hard to judge out three, six months. But someone like yourself who speaks to so many people within the industry, so much knowledge, information, where do you see podcasting? And of course, sounds profitable over the next couple of years.
0: So sounds profitable. We're trying to figure out like, what's next? Like, I like I mentioned earlier, like, do we really need to become a nonprofit? Does the name work at the scale that we're at now? I love the name. We've had it for a while. It's very fun. It could continue to be the name of the newsletter. But at what point do we need to consider being more a trade association by name, right? Something a little bit more respectable, I guess. I don't love that, but I'll admit it. And so figuring that out right in service to the industry, right? We, we built this great business, turning it into an entirely a nonprofit would kill the long-term potential for Tom and I, but we need to do what's right by the industry. So we're really considering it. For the industry, we're seeing CPMs and video go down, right? There's um, there's a movement right now related to identifying video inventory as video ad inventory within video content or video ad inventory on a website standalone, right? Like those pop-ups that have video on them or a page that only has the video ad, no other video content. Adoption for that has been incredibly low because publishers will lose out. They were able to just say, this is video content and people would pay the the one single price for it. It'd be competing with YouTube content, your website would, but by identifying it, you're devaluing some of the website inventory and you're raising up the value of the in-stream video. Those advertisers may be priced out of it, or if the CPM goes out, those video uh, c- continues to go down. Those video companies are going to want more inventory, want more stable things. Audio ad serving works very similar to video ad serving. So I think we're going to see more of a coupling there. I think that we'll see more people treat podcasting as influencer marketing. I think that we'll see more companies try and pull pieces away from podcasting. I'm still shocked that all the streaming apps, like the Frozen podcast that's coming out, I think it would be an incredible move to put that on the Disney Plus app, whether behind a subscription or not, right? Give me a reason to walk down the street with the Disney Plus app playing in my ear or drive in the car and play it to my kids. I may foolishly walk down the street looking at TikTok, but I'm not walking down the street watching the Batman on HBO. I would listen to a Batman podcast on the HBO app closed in my pocket. So I think, I think the overlap with video, the extension of the content, the ability to be table reads or how when Netflix ends a season, our show at season two, they do six episode trail off in the audio for that closure. I think it's I think it's a huge opportunity, especially as these video companies start looking to add inventory too, because we have plenty of it. It's interesting. We're an open format, which is exciting to many, but it's punishing because we're not in control of the relationship with our customers, our listeners. And that's really going to be the things that we have to explore and find comfort with. So I think it's on an upward trajectory, but the, the last thing I will say on that really is that if we do not get the spotlight from major industry, like advertising, marketing, or content trade publications and new, like newsletters and media and events and all of that, if we're not given space, if we're not, people aren't willing to highlight content, we won't grow, right? And, and that's a big part of our initiative is we're gonna push and we're gonna justify and we're gonna explain why we should have a space there, why they should give us four panels and do a mini podcast track at all these different events. And we are now in a position when they say, Well, I don't know. I'll just say how much, right? Because I know we need to be there and I know I'm paying, and they get all the benefit and the credit of being like, Look what we highlighted. But at the end of the day, the people who know, know, the people who understand and are part of this industry get the benefit of that. And we get to do right by the space. It's not about lining our pockets, it's about looking at it and saying, We need to be there. We need a yacht <laughs> at Cannes called it, you know, the SS podcast. We need, to get people to pay attention to us. And when that's one company being asked to spend $150,000, that's a huge risk. When it's 150 companies being asked to spend $1,000, it's really powerful. And when we can simply just take that out of our revenue and just pay for it and prove to everybody they should be there, well, maybe next year we all do it together, right? Maybe, Maybe that's it. But a great example is the podcast network that you're on right here. The number of podcasts, let alone episodes released in a month, first, the coverage of the space in print and other sources, wild, wild that we're, that all these magazines, these news outlets, everybody sees such value in creating content for podcasting, but doesn't give it editorial air. I don't, I don't understand why they're not grasping that they're, they're responsible for the lack of exponential growth.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, agree with you with that opportunity and, and where is it and and hopefully it will happen but i do want to thank you for sharing with us your insight into the industry into podcasting and really congratulate you just in terms twofold one you know really building an incredible business but but secondly i think most importantly it really seems like your drive and your mission is industry focused from even how you set up the business originally without being able to be on boards or, or take equity. But it really seems like you're our guy out there, you know, you time right. and, and it's really important because all of these things you just ended with, I think over the next couple of years is really going to either catapult us as an industry, or we might keep lagging. So I do want to personally thank you for that. And definitely thank you for for coming on uh, How Success Happens. Thank you. I'm incredibly flattered to be here. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at or on Twitter at Robert Tuchman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.